Rome. For over a thousand years, a name that could strike fear into the hearts of its bravest enemies. A name that rang with pride in the hearts of its loyalist subjects. An empire that ruled over most of the known world, and the greatest city with the most disciplined army on the planet. We learn about Rome and the Roman Empire at school for a very important reason, in the same way we learn about the Victorians. The impact they had on us and our culture is nothing short of biblical. Welcome to episode three of What You May Have Mythed, and this week we are exploring the foundation of Rome. Before the Romans landed on the shores of Great Britain, we didn't have proper toilets, central heating, libraries, police, cement, bricks, indoor plumbing, proper roads, turnips, stinging nettles, firemen, cats, heated baths or cabbages. But thanks to those industrious fellows, we now do. Despite being rather murderous to those who opposed them, the Romans contributed a phenomenal amount to the lands in which they found themselves. But here is the question. What is it the Romans possessed that no one else did that meant they were so superior to any other nation in Europe? The answer, as you could probably guess, lies in a legend. If you go onto the internet right now and type in Rome, you will be overwhelmed with the amount of travel and holiday companies advertising the best place to stay. Advertisements of hostels, hotels, restaurants, what to do, what to see, how to do it, why you should do this, why you should do that. So it's incredible to me, at least, that this hustling and bustling city was once nothing more than seven grassy hills with small mud hut settlements and peacefully grazing cows. The archaeological evidence suggests that there were people living on these seven hills of Rome 14,000 years ago, some 11,000 years before the traditional foundation date of the 21st of April, 753 BCE. That is a rather specific date, I hear you say. How on earth is it possible that there is an exact date for the founding of a city so long ago? The answer to that will be given over the course of the next half an hour or so. Obviously, I'm not going to be telling the historical story because A that wouldn't be anywhere near as entertaining as the myth, and b, because this is a myth podcast, and just telling history would make this episode quite obsolete. So, to myth. But first, history. The Romans were proud people. Everything they did, they did for the glory of Rome. They believed it was the right of Rome to rule the world, and that stemmed from their legendary history. You see, the Romans liked to believe two stories that made it appear that their city was superior in every way to all others, and they did this through the telling of myths. The first myth that they told was that of the twins, Romulus and Remus, 
Sons of Mars, the god of war, who I'm guessing you've heard of. And the second was that of Aeneas, hero of the War of Troy, who had been commanded by a vision of Hector, the fallen prince of Troy, to build a great city overseas. You can see the appeal in both these legends. The first demonstrates how the Romans can trace their beginnings to the divine, and to none other than the god of war. We all know how much the Romans loved war. The second implies that Rome was the daughter of the legendary city of Troy, and that was a tale the Romans were all too happy to champion. For a long time, these two legends were separate from one another, so the question was, was there a way to unite the two and make a cohesive foundation story? Well, maybe. Some people held the belief that Romulus and Remus were the grandchildren of Aeneas. There's a glaring problem here that means this way isn't going to do enough to unite the two. Rome, as the Romans had decided, was founded in 753 BCE, but the War of Troy had taken place nearly 500 years before that date, so simple human biology debunks the grandchild theory. By the end of the first century BCE, a solution had presented itself, and that was to make the relationship between Aeneas and Romulus and Remus a bit more distant. Not wanting to give away the ending before we even begin, I will abandon my monologue here and pick it up after we have read the myth itself. So, without further ado, here we go. The Foundation of Rome Aeneas was a lucky man. To the Trojans he was a hero, but sadly there weren't many of them left, thanks to the Greeks. Troy was a ruin, a flaming pile of pottery, people, stone and a wooden horse. Most of the Trojans who had survived the sack and arson of their city were treated rather cruelly by the Greeks, but I won't go into detail what happened to them here, otherwise I might get a telling off. Let's just say that it was deeply unpleasant and move on. Aeneas, as I said, was lucky and managed to escape the carnage and after a series of rather exciting adventures around the Mediterranean with his fellow survivors, landed on the coast of Italy in the Laurentine territory. A small side note here, the exciting adventures of which I speak can be found in The Aeneid by Virgil, an epic Roman poem held in the same regard as the Iliad or the Odyssey. Further down the line, there may be an episode regarding Aeneas and his journey from Troy. During that time, the land of Italy was divided into areas, each ruled over by their own king. Unaware that this was the case, the Trojans started to make themselves at home, mainly by pillaging the area for food and resources. It wasn't long, however, before King Latinus heard of these foreign invaders. The reports told him that they were nothing more than a band of shabby-looking miscreants who looked rather homeless, because they were. Assuring himself that it would be quite easy to defeat these malefactors, he took up arms to defend his people and his city. On a plain, the two armies faced each other. The soldiers of King Latinus were well-armoured and well-trained. The Trojans were weary, forlorn and desperate for a little respite from the tortures of the world. The stage was then set for a bloodbath. But something happened then that no one could have predicted. King Latinus asked Aeneas over for a chat. Luke, he said, 
you lot are clearly a bit out of your depth facing us. If we were to charge you right now, it would probably take about 47 seconds to wipe you out entirely, and that seems a shame. So, why don't you tell me who you are, why you're here, and I'm sure we can come to some arrangement that doesn't end in a massacre. Aeneas looked blankly at King Latinus. You can't... he can't understand a word I'm saying, can he? Latinus looked to his advisers. Um, right. Anyone have any ideas? You need to find a common language, Your Grace. Judging by their ships, they are from the Aegean area, so maybe Greek? One of them suggested. Ah, good thinking. Latinus repeated his statement, and it was clear that Aeneas understood this time. My name is Aeneas. I am son of Anchises. I fought during the War of Troy for ten hard years before the Greeks destroyed my beloved city. I have been searching for a place for myself and my fellows to make a new life and build a city so as to once again live in peace. Aeneas? The Aeneas? Son of Aphrodite? Yes, I am the son of Aphrodite. And you say you're not here to reap destruction on my land? No. I do not wish to make war with you. We saw you coming over the hill and readied ourselves for battle, despite the knowledge that you would, quite obviously, wipe the floor with us. But we are prepared to fight and die if that is what must happen. King Latinus was impressed by the handsome young man, having brought the survivors of his city so far and be prepared to die for them at the drop of a hat. Latinus had also heard of the greatness of Troy, a city of legendary heroes. I don't see any need for you or any of your people to die today. I've heard of the splendour of your city in the West, and I'm sorry for the destruction the Greeks brought down on you. The king held out a hand to Aeneas. I offer you my hand in friendship. I would have us be allies rather than enemies. The two armies laid down their arms, and the Trojans were welcomed into the king's city with open arms. Aeneas was treated as a guest in King Latinus's house, and it wasn't long before one of the king's daughters caught his eye, and, Latinus being the kind gentleman he was, offered him her hand in marriage. And so, for a short period, the Trojans and the Laurentines lived in peaceful harmony together. Aeneas even built the city he so desperately wanted for his people, and named it Lavinium, after his beautiful wife, Lavinia. What a romantic chap! Their marriage also produced a son, Ascanius. Awkwardly, however, Lavinia had already been promised to the king of the Rutuli, a man called Turnus, and he was extremely angry that the sacred marriage pact had been broken. How dare Latinus give his daughter to a foreign outsider instead of a mighty king? It was outrageous! Turnus mustered his army and marched for the Laurentine territory, and war. And so, once again, the Trojans found themselves at the centre of another conflict started over a woman. Nothing like a bit of deja vu. Inevitably, there was a rather large battle where, I'm sorry to say, the kindly King Latinus perished. Despite this rather tragic happening, the Trojans and their allies beat back King Turnus, who then appealed to the Etruscans, whose king believed that the Trojans were managing to get themselves a bit too much in the way of power and cities. With Latinus dead and the imminent threat of attack from Turnus and his new Etruscan friends, 
Aeneas had a wish to win the loyalty of the Laurentine people. Not only did Aeneas give them the same rights as his Trojan countrymen, but he united both peoples under one name, the Latins. The indigenous people liked this, and it wasn't long before they were more than willing to pledge their allegiance to Aeneas. Having got his wish, Aeneas now commanded a rather formidable force, and he led them onto the field of battle, feeling confident, despite the rather spectacular reputation of his foes. Leading the newly united Latins into battle was to be the last act of Aeneas's life. The Latins triumphed over the enemy, but Aeneas's body was nowhere to be found, and he was afterwards worshipped as a god called Jupiter Indiges. So silver linings and all that. At the time Aeneas died, his son Ascanius was still too young to take the crown, but he was nurtured by his mother, Lavinia, until he was old enough and wise enough to take the mantle of king. One day, when Ascanius had ascended the throne, he sought out his mother, who was sat watching the birds from a window. Mother, he said, this city was founded by father, yes? It was my love. He sailed all the way from Troy to find a new place for his people, and he found the perfect spot right here, she replied. Well, you say it's the perfect spot, said Ascanius slowly, but I reckon I've found an even better place to build a city. Oh, not you as well, Lavinia said exasperatedly. Your father was obsessed with making his city the biggest and the best, and now you want to go and make another one. You've got one already, you don't need another. Yes, but Lavinium's so crammed. There's so many people living here that we're struggling to find room to build more houses. So, I had an idea. When I was too young to be king, you ruled, and you were pretty good at it. I was thinking, if you stayed and ruled here, then I could go and rule my new city. He had pitched it to perfection, he could tell. At the mention of being able to rule Lavinium, Lavinia had sat up straighter, and her eyes had shone. Oh, well, in that case, I suppose you could go and do what you want. You are the king, after all. The spot that Ascanius had found was at the foot of Mount Alba, and was indeed a cracking spot to build a city. So, as was his wish, he built a beautiful new city that ran along a ridge that ran the length of the base of Mount Alba. As the city neared completion, Lavinia visited her son. Ah, oh, what a wonderful place! Your father would have been so proud of you. You know that he named Lavinium after me, as he loved me more than anyone. What will you name your city? She looked expectantly at him. Well, he replied, I've thought long and hard about it, and I think I've come up with the perfect name. How does Alba Longa sound. Um, Alba Longa. Why would you call it that? Because it's at the foot of Mount Alba and it runs along the ridge. It's the perfect name, no? If, if you say so. To prevent us being here all day, we're going to make a substantial time jump, one of several hundred years. After the death of Ascanius, the rule of Alba Longa passed to his son, and his son after him, and so on and so on, until a man called Proca took the throne. Proca had two sons, 
Numitor and Amulius. Numitor was the elder of the brothers, and so would be the one to inherit his father's crown. However, Amulius wasn't a very pleasant younger brother, and believed he would be a better king. Amulius threw Numitor unceremoniously from the city, executed his brother's son, and made rare Sylvia, Numitor's daughter, into a Vestal Virgin, a priestess to the goddess Vesta who were forbidden to marry or have children. Now there was nothing stopping Amulius taking the crown for himself. There was no one left to oppose him. His brother and children were taken care of, and the rest of the city lived in fear of what he may do to them if they should dispute his rule. Then something remarkable happened. Rhea Sylvia, the Vestal Virgin daughter of Numitor, became pregnant. I know, scandalous, but not as scandalous as you might have thought, as Rhea was visited by the god of war, Mars, who, you know, had his way with her. The divine nature of this astonishing conception did not do anything to help save Rhea and the twin boys she bore from the wrath of the evil Amulius, however. The king ordered that Rhea be chained up and thrown in prison, while the twin boys be dropped into the river Tiber to drown. The slaves did as they were ordered. They took the wicker basket that contained the boys and placed it in the river to be swept away to a watery grave. But, as you probably know, the murder attempt didn't work. Rather than sink to the bottom of the river and drown the boys, the basket floated serenely along the Tiber until it washed gently ashore on a pebbly bank. As night fell and the temperature dropped, the boys started to cry. Well, they were babies, after all. No one heard their crying, and before long the boys had fallen asleep, hugging each other for warmth. A very hairy and toothy surprise awaited them when they awoke the following morning, for through the hangings on the basket was the head of a very large wolf. Uh-oh, I hear you say. Well, yes, if you were to wake up to find a wolf standing over you, you would probably need a new pair of trousers. But remember, the boys were only very small babies, so what they saw did not frighten them. The wolf happened to be a nursing mother, a she-wolf, and, recognising that she had stumbled across two younglings, she took them into her care, fed them her milk, and kept them warm. Thankfully, the she-wolf did not have the boys in her care for very long, as they would most likely have been eaten when the male leader of the pack returned. It was a man called Faustulus who found the boys in the care of the wolf. Faustulus was the chief herdsman to none other than King Amulius. He was amazed to find the wolf caring for the two boys, but decided, for the best, I'm sure you'll agree, to take them home and raise them as his own sons. He and his wife gave the boys not only a safe home, warmth and food, but also names, Romulus and Remus. And so, the twin boys went from being conceived by the god of war, to attempted murder by drowning, to being rescued by a she-wolf, to being adopted by a shepherd, all before being given names. They'd already had a more interesting time in their first few weeks of life than most people have over thirty years. Romulus and Remus were both raised as shepherds by Faustulus, and they grew to be strong, handsome young men. They were well respected in the area, as they were not only strong, honest and courageous, 
but also exceptional at archery and wrestling and using swords and spears. They spent most of the time of their youth standing up for the weak. They were essentially an ancient version of Robin Hood. They would lie, hidden in the trees, waiting for bands of thieves to come by, pounce on them and take treasures they had stolen and share it among the local shepherds. Thus, it wasn't long before they had banded around them a group of close friends who would do anything and everything that Romulus and Remus asked of them. Their own band of merry men. The robbers were starting to get a bit fed up that these annoying youths were managing to steal all their wares and get away with it. So they plotted. They knew that the festival of worship to the god Pan was coming up, and knew that the brothers and their men would celebrate it in a frivolous and exuberant way. This, then, would be the perfect opportunity. And it was, mostly. The brothers were dancing around to the celebratory music, naked, I hasten to add, when the robbers ambushed them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything worse than being ambushed whilst I'm dancing naked to a god whilst drinking lots of beer. Not that I do that too often. Romulus, who was ever so slightly less drunk than his brother, managed to successfully repel the attackers whilst in his birthday suit. Remus, however, was not so fortunate. The robbers managed to grab him round the middle and drag him away. This, though, wasn't the worst thing that happened to Remus that day. After being heaved away from his party, the poor fellow was taken before none other than King Amulius, yes, the same chap who had ordered Remus and his brother to be thrown in the river twenty-five years ago. Throwing Remus down before the king, the robbers claimed that both he and his brother had been captured whilst pillaging the lands that belonged to Amulius's brother, Numitor, who Amulius had allowed to live on lands near Alba Longa. Amulius didn't care to listen to the troubles of people on lands that weren't his, though. Why on earth do I care if they've been ravaging the land I don't own? Take them to my loser of a brother. He can deal with them. I've got many more important things to be getting on with, particularly lunch. And so Remus was taken before Numitor. Meanwhile, back at home, Faustulus was very concerned. He had already questioned where his two adopted sons had come from and had long come to the conclusion that they were quite probably royalty. However, he had never voiced his suspicions to anyone in the hopes that it would protect the twins from further harm at the hands of their wicked uncle. Given the current dread situation, though, Faustulus could see no other path than to confess all to Romulus, who, understandably, had returned home in a towering temper at the kidnap of his brother. They took him! They actually took him! I thought stealing people was beneath them, that they just stuck to taking gold and jewels, but no! I'm going to find them and make them suffer! Romulus raged. I don't blame you, son, Faustulus replied. I want him back too. Sit down, my lad. There's something very important you need to know. Something I believe will help you in rescuing your brother. Romulus started pacing. I'm a shepherd's son, he spat bitterly. Nothing I could say could win over the favour of the king. He's going to kill him. Listen to what I have to say, please. Faustulus didn't like seeing Romulus like this. He knew Romulus's wrath was terrible to the thieves he attacked, but he had thankfully never been on the receiving end. 
Romulus stopped his pacing and looked at his father. His eyes were burning with anger, but at the look on his father's face they softened. He would never attack the gentle man who had raised him. Romulus nodded and sat down. This may be difficult for you to hear. I have put off telling you this for nearly a quarter of a century, but I am not your father. What? How on— Let me speak. I found you and your brother down by the shore of the Tiber. I was fetching water for the bath when I saw a basket lying abandoned on the beach. Fearing the worst, I made for the basket, only to discover it was empty. Whoever had been in the basket, I feared, had long been swept away by the river, but I was wrong. As I contemplated the tragedy that had happened, a wolf appeared out from the bush behind me. Naturally, I pulled the knife from my belt, fearing an imminent attack, but none came. Instead, the wolf looked at me, then at the basket by my feet, and then turned back into the bush. Did she mean what I thought she meant? Well, there was only one way to find out. I retrieved the basket from the floor, and, with my knife held before me, followed her into the undergrowth. She was waiting for me, and when I broke through the first branches, she turned and led me only a short way. I could still hear the river behind me. But that wasn't the only thing I could hear. At first I didn't believe my ears. How could I? But then the noise grew louder, and I knew I wasn't just hearing things. I pushed aside a branch, and there was the wolf standing behind two baby boys. You and your brother. How long you had been with the wolf I had no knowledge, but what I did know was that she had led me to you to be raised by your own kind. She did not attempt any attack as I stooped to pick you off the floor and place you in the basket. She picked up the blanket you had been swaddled in and placed it gently over you both when you were in the basket, and licked your faces in farewell. She even walked back to the river bank with me. I took you home with me, and we raised you as our sons. At that time we had heard tell that King Amulius had overthrown his brother Numitor to take the crown. Not long after that there was a great scandal in Alba Longa. The Vestal Virgin, Rea Silvia, daughter to Numitor and niece to Amulius, had given birth to twin boys who had been fathered by Mars. As you know, the punishment for a Vestal bearing children is death. I can add two and two together. I found you at the same time that twin boys were being thrown into the river on the orders of Amulius. As I said, I am not your true father. You and your brother are the sons of Mars, and the grandsons of the true king, Numitor. For a long time Romulus didn't say anything. He was stunned. He was the grandson of Numitor, the true ruler of Alba Longa, and he and Remus had been thrown into the Tiber on the orders of that tyrannical wart. The rage that had subsided slightly as Faustulus spoke rose once again within Romulus. After what the king had done to him and his family, he was going to go to Alba Longa and kill Amulius. But at the home of Numitor, the true king was beginning to reach a similar conclusion as to whom he had held as a captive in his dungeons. As it finally dawned on him who Remus was, 
a great joy filled his heart. His family line lived on, and now here was the way to reclaim the throne of Alba Longa and restore happiness to the region. He freed Remus from his cell, and together they hatched a plan to take down the wretched Amulius. Amulius didn't suspect a thing. He thought all the challenges to his rule were gone, his family was gone, and everyone lived in fear. Little did he know that Romulus had ordered his shepherds to make their way quietly into Alba Longa before meeting in a dark alley at a set time. Unbeknownst to Romulus, Numitor had set Remus free. They met in the city, catching each other by complete surprise, but still very grateful to be together again. They would be able to take retribution with ease now, and so, when Romulus and his brother attacked, Amulius was caught completely off his guard. The brothers managed to fight their way, without too much difficulty, to the king, and in a great swing with his sword, Romulus relieved Amulius of his head. When Numitor first heard of the decapitating of his brother, he thought there had been some foreign invasion going on. He and Remus had not planned to storm the palace, rather just take the city and oust Amulius. He beckoned his own guards to assist the city in its defence, but then he saw his grandsons running out of the palace towards him with identical grins spread across their faces. Grandfather, said Remus, Amulius is dead. We proclaim you king of Alba Longa once again. Oh, so you're the ones attacking. I've had my guards... Wait, what did you say? I'm king again? Oh, how splendid! What wonderful news! And Numitor led the twins back inside the palace. When there, he called an assembly where he told the tale of how his sadistic brother had taken the throne killed his daughter and son, and had his grandchildren thrown in the river. Given that the people of Alba Longa hadn't really liked Amulius, they were quite cheery to have their old and rightful king back on the throne. All was well in the world once again. Or was it? In some family lines, blue eyes are prevalent. In some it's being tall, and in some unfortunate cases it is being ginger. In Romulus and Remus's family, though, it was a desire to build cities. Aeneas built Lavinium, Ascanius built Alba Longa, and so it was fairly inevitable that the twins would want to build their own too. To be fair to them, Alba Longa and Lavinium were starting to become a bit overcrowded with Latins. However, there was a problem. Every city had its own king. One king and Romulus and Remus were twins. You see the problem they now faced? Being twins, it was obviously impossible to make the traditional older sibling choice, so instead they decided to leave the fate of the kingship up to the gods, who would prophesize which brother should be king and have the city named after them. Because, as those of you who know your Roman and Greek mythology, nothing at all bad happens when the gods make decisions. And so they stood in a rather pretty area of land, surrounded by seven grassy hills with some grazing cows. It was an area near the Tiber where Faustulus had found them and where the two boys had grown up together. For a long time the brothers stood there looking around for any sign that could indicate a divine prophecy, but to no avail. So they decided that, as the gods were above them, the best place to seek their signs would be a bit higher than a valley floor. 
They each chose one of the seven hills to climb. Romulus took the Palatine, and Remus the Aventine. This strategy worked, as before long Remus spotted what was clearly a divine sign. Six vultures circling overhead. Racing down the side of the Aventine and up towards Romulus at the top of the Palatine, Remus called out to his brother, I have seen the sign! Six vultures over my hill! It is a sure sign from the gods! I am to be the king of our city and it shall bear my name! I shall call it Reem! Remus jumped up and down in delight, believing that he had managed to secure a victory over his brother. But not so fast. As you were running like a lunatic down that, frankly, much smaller hill, I saw twelve vultures above me, so clearly it's meant to be me who rules the city. Ha <laughs> ha! And Reem, what a moronic name for a city. Sounds like a disease. But there were vultures above my hill first, so I am the winner, cried Remus. But there were more birds over mine, so therefore the gods favour me as the king, countered Romulus. But your hill is far too steep to build on. You wouldn't be able to build a wall, let alone a city, you moron. It's a stupid place to build, and you know it, Remus replied. Are you mocking me? Uh-oh. Romulus was angry, and we know what happens when Romulus gets angry. How dare you! I saw more birds than you at the top of this hill, so that means I am the rightful king of the city. We haven't built a city yet, so at the moment you're king of Jack Squat, shouted Remus. That was the final straw. Romulus drew his sword, and before Remus could pull his own out of its scabbard, before he even realised what was happening, Romulus plunged his blade through his brother's chest. And so it was that Romulus became a brotherless man and was left to build a city on his own. Granted, he did give his brother a decent funeral. After all, they had spent their entire lives as inseparable companions, fighting robbers and overthrowing evil kings. The first place Romulus started building was on the Palatine Hill, the site where he had seen the vultures. From there he spread out towards the remaining six hills, even the one on which his brother had planned to construct his city. Finally, after many years, Romulus's city was complete. The city that would become the most powerful, the most fear-inducing and the most glorious for over a thousand years. Rome. And there we have it. The Romans succeeded in their goal to create a cohesive story of their founding whilst exploiting the legendary tales of two myths. Aeneas, the Trojan hero, was the founder of the Latin people, and his descendants, Romulus and Remus, were the founders of their magnificent city. This, then, was the reason I spoke of at the beginning that gave the Romans their belief that they were destined to rule over all those they conquered, and why, as the historian Livy puts it, their city, and indeed their empire, was second only to the power of the gods. Next week we are venturing to the Far East and into the realms of Chinese mythology. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or indeed of any other episode, then please drop me an email at themythspodcast at gmail.com or tweet me on at mythedpodcast. For now, though, I leave you with this quote from Herodotus regarding the Persians, whose wisdom may have made Romulus and Remus's decision about who should rule slightly easier. If an important decision is to be made, 
The Persians discuss the question when they are drunk, and the following day, the master of the house where the discussion was held submits their decision for reconsideration when they are sober. If they still approve, it is adopted. If not, it is abandoned. Conversely, any decision they make when they are sober is reconsidered afterwards when they are drunk. Cheerio.